You are back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. How far have we come and how much further to go when it comes to equity, gender, and race? This weekend in cities across the country, communities held rallies to throw the spotlight on violence against Asian Americans. And two lawmakers with Hawaii ties, Representative Tammy Duckworth and Senator Maisie Hirono, called on President Joe Biden to name Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders to his cabinet. We wondered what former Republican Congresswoman Pat Psyche thought about these issues. She has a new book out entitled A Woman in the House that's set to launch in a few weeks. And because March is Women's History Month, we thought it fitting we reach out to talk to her about how far we've come on these issues of equality. I'm sure that there are women who are qualified and probably need to take a little more time to find them. (laughs) But Washington has a lot of talented people, and a lot of them are Asians. So I have no doubt that they will come when women, qualified women of every descent, will be part of the leadership. Well, you were head of the Small Business Administration. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I was fortunate enough to uh, become head of the Small Business Administration. The truth of the matter is that George H.W. Bush, you know, after I lost the election, called me and offered me a cabinet position. He says, which cabinet position would you like? Would you like commerce or labor? And I said, no, I would really like an agency position like Small Business Administration because 95% of the businesses in Hawaii are small businesses. And my purpose in going back to Washington is to continue to serve my people. So I want to take the position that will affect, let me affect them most. And he says, oh, well, sure, if you want that one, we'll see what we can do. We'll go through the confirmation process. And um, good luck. He says, I'll see to it that you get the position, as far as we're concerned, from this administration. So it was very fortunate. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of anti-Asian sentiment across the country, which is so sad. What are your thoughts, you know, on that? Because I know the Republican Party, you know, made some gains. They've got some Asian-American representatives, I mean, women in Congress. And so, yeah, how are you looking at all this? Well, I try to be a lot more, uh, shall we say, copacetic. In other words, watch the changes that are occurring with the general public. I mean, you go through these stages. You know, whether it's anti-Jewish or anti-black or anti-Latino, now we're looking at anti-Asian. So we're watching the gamut. People are looking at, shall we say, racial background rather than qualifications. Maybe they'll settle back into what we need are people with qualifications, never mind their background, whether they're Asian or what. But um, representation, I suppose, is... uh, crucial to give a well-rounded look to leadership. But I, no, I have no uh, concern, really. I think it's another phase that we have to go through, and um, it'll, it'll work out. Do you think we're insulated, you know, from some of that? Because, you know, in cities like San Francisco and I think L.A., you know, there, there's... Oh, you mean Hawaii? Yes. Oh, uh, yeah. We are far more diverse than any other state. So I guess we can be a lot more generalistic, you know? I mean, we've lived with racial differences for many, many years, and uh, we get along. (laughs) And so, you know, you've just completed writing this book. Yep. It's going to be out next month. It's entitled Woman in the House. Yes, absolutely, because at the time that I was interested in participating in government. We were very short of women. We only had three members of the House of Representatives and only one woman in the Senate. So my motto was, what we need is a woman in the House. (laughs) And I've kept that as a theme for many years because if you look then at the members of Congress, again, we're short of women participating in Congress. We're short of women in administration. Women are just beginning to poke their heads into leadership positions, and I'm glad to see that change occurring. But I thought the title of the book was very appropriate, then and now. And so talk about your time in the House and the barriers, I guess, that maybe you had to scale to get there. Oh, yes. In, in my time, 
things were much more difficult than they are now. There's no question. When I was a school teacher, in those days, women weren't getting paid for maternity leave, and they were never assured their job back after birth. A woman who was raped or assaulted was taken by the police to the doctors at the morgue to be interviewed and uh, inspected. All of that had to be changed when I came along and I saw the difficulties occurring. My husband, of course, was an OBGYN, and uh, he was more sensitive to all of this because he saw it on a daily basis. And he told me, you've got to do something about it. Women shouldn't be treated in that way. I said, of course not. So that's how we made the changes. And he helped to create with Dick Davi, who was then the CEO of Kapiolani Hospital. They formed the Sex Abuse Center and uh, got it going. And then they turned around and said to me, we need money. We need to get this going. So then I went to my Democrat friends, had the bill drafted to create this treatment center with the amount of money that I needed to make it go. And it was very simple. You take an issue like that and you go to these Democrat friends and say, if this were your mother, your sister, your aunt, your daughter, would you want that person to be taken to the morgue to be interviewed? They say, oh, no, absolutely not. I say, well, then sign this bill. because This bill will say that that person will have to go being inspected by a doctor and sympathetic nurses at Kapiolani Hospital. And it was the easiest piece of legislation to pass. I mean, this is the way things worked in those days to correct the, uh, the wrongs that existed in the community. It meant drafting a bill and taking it to both Republicans and Democrats and getting it passed. I then developed a 28 set of bills on, called the Equal Rights Bills, which actually resulted from a uh, review by Pat Putman of the Legislative Reference Bureau, who looked at all the laws on our books at the time. And you'd be surprised what was there. And uh, so I drafted up all these bills to make the corrections and allow for women to be able to own a, uh, shall we say, a home in her own name, that she could get a loan in her own name, that she could leave her assets when she retired to her husband, which was not allowed at that time. I mean, there were so many changes that had to be made, 28 bills, and they all passed. Of course, they passed under uh, the auspices of Democrat legislators who copied the bills and introduced them. But the, uh, but the reporters and those who knew who drafted them originally, uh, they, they, they knew that I had done it, so they gave me credit for it. So I, would, I didn't introduce them for, for the purpose of getting credit. But, uh, and I'm glad that we made all those changes. So, so many of those things happened Catherine, in those days, it was uh, quite earth-shaking for women at that stage of the game, because well, we were denied so many rights that we deserved. Well, you talk about you know the bipartisan effort. We haven't seen a, a lot of that right. in recent times, and and it's been so painful. You oh know. Yes. And to, and I don't know what your thoughts were, you know, when you saw the siege on the Capitol and, and what you were thinking at the time. Terrible shame. It was a terrible shame that it ever happened. And I couldn't believe that it happened. I never thought that Americans would turn on themselves so easily. But uh, and I'm glad we're over it. But and I hope it never happens again. Yeah, we were uh, scared for the Hawaii delegation because we didn't know where our lawmakers were that day at That's that right. time as we were watching it unfold on TV. That's right. So you've been through this experience there in Congress. You've seen the changes and the polarization uh, in our country now. What is it that you like to underscore? Well, you know, people have to start concentrating on the issues and the right and wrong of, of the issues. For instance, uh, in my day, the uh, 
the measure on, of uh, the reparations for those Japanese Americans that were interned during the war that was pen- that had pended was pending in the Congress for ten years before I was elected. And when I got elected, I went when I got to Congress, I found out that my Republicans were the ones that were holding it up. So I immediately asked for a caucus to meet with all my Republican friends, and I told them, fasten your seatbelts. I'm going to take you on a guilt trip. (laughs) So hang on. I'm going to tell you the stories. And I did explain to them what happened during the war when these Japanese Americans were herded into these concentration camps, which is what I call them. They were interned camps. And uh, denied due process. And they were kept there with no jurisdiction possible for them to settle any complaints. And by golly, it changed a few votes, and uh, another vote came up, and so finally the Reparations Act passed. And uh, holy, it, it, it was just amazing. So President Reagan called me and said that, uh, you know, he, he, he was very impressed with it, I asked him to please sign the bill. Don't let it become law without his signature. He says, yes, but if you stand by me as I sign the bill, uh, we'll do that together. And so I said, that's great. So you see the pictures now, and it's shown at Smithsonian and all over the world, in Japan, in all of the uh, museums. You see the picture of the internment uh, reparations act with uh, President Reagan signing the bill, and I'm standing right there next to him. It was, for me, a great, great joy to have that done. So, you know, but, but you see, it, it has to be uh, on a one-on-one basis with people who matter. And if you talk in terms of the issues, like these Republicans that I had to convince, that the, the uh, value of the, uh, their vote is affecting people's lives, uh, then they see the picture for what it really is. And that's not what we do these days. We just react to uh, partisan forces one way or the other, and uh, there's, there's not attention, enough attention paid to the value of the issues, right or wrong. And as you reflected back on your career, you know, uh, both here at the state, you know, legislature and then there in our nation's capital. I don't know, anything that you're proudest of? Well, well, there are many things that I'm very proud of. I don't know which is the proudest because there's so many. Oh, another area that I am really proud of is, again, not totally my doing, but it's the issue that prevailed and the research that you did to find out how you can correct the mistakes that exist, and that is the bombing of Kaho'olawe. Yes. You know, again, George H.W. Bush did not realize that uh, it was by presidential edict that the bombing of Kaho'olawe took place. So when I explained to him the damage that it's doing, not only to the Hawaiians through their culture, and but also just to the islands themselves, next to Maui, where the windows were rattling because bombs were dropping on Kaho'olawe right next to it. And uh, they didn't, you know, he, he, he really didn't know anything about it, not really. So he had John Sununu, who was his chief of staff, look into this, and um, within three months, he called me and said, we are going to change that. I issued a presidential edict. We're going to stop the bombing of Kaho'olawe, and we're also going to create a commission to look at how we can help the island be rejuvenated. So, you know, I'm proud of these kinds of efforts. And, and it isn't so much that I did it. It's that I was there and followed through with pursuing the means by which it can be done. You know, in this case, the president did it. He's the one that, that uh, ordered the change. 
but I'm the one that called his attention to it. Now, we're not doing enough of that today. So members of Congress, many of them are looking after themselves and what they can do for themselves rather than how valuable their stances are on the issues. Things have changed. Now it becomes more personal than issue-oriented, and that's really a shame. You know, and uh, we have, uh, you know, highlighted, I think, you know, your, your career as an educator and then into politics. You have credited your success, you know, with what your father taught you as a child. Oh, yes. My father was my greatest influence from when I was very, very young. He, he was a tennis champion, and he trained us to uh, be able to compete in a tennis match and use that as a, as a experience of life. You know, you fight the battle, and you win some, and you lose some. But the main thing is the way you played the game, whether you were honest and forthright and thorough in what you tried to accomplish. That is the main thing. So my father, who was a clerk for AMFAC, which was the largest corporation in this state, uh, took great pride when his daughter became a member of the board of directors of the company that he worked for. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he couldn't get over it. Because when Henry Walker came and asked me to be a member of the board because he said it's time that we allowed a woman to sit on a board of directors of a major corporation in the state. There were no women, you know, on any of the boards when I became uh, a board member of ASAC. I told him, uh, I can't give you my answer until I talk to my father. <laughs> because my father worked for ANFA. And if he approves, then certainly I'd be happy to. So I did call my father up. Of course, he was appalled that I would even suggest that I couldn't just immediately accept the position. <laughs> but he was thrilled. And, uh, but, but I wanted him to know that he made a difference in my life and that if he had not, not set the goals and the means by which you achieve those goals and set them in a way that I understood as I grew up, I would not have been able to achieve what little I did and that I wanted to include him in, in every success that I had. And, you know, Pat, over your career, you've also, I think, held a position as head of the Republican Party. Oh, yeah, uh, twice. I know, Not once, but twice. <laughs> and, and, you know... There are many in our community that wish we had a stronger two-party system. We oh, don't. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, definitely. Well, we do need a, a strong opposition party. We should have much more participation in government in mm -hmm. Hawaii than we do today. And mm -hmm. it's the Republican Party that needs to be, shall we say, redesigned and refocused and uh, elect more people to office. And what would you like to see in the next head of the Republican Party? Well, I'd like to see some real true leadership in the right direction, you know, in providing that kind of opposition that we need in electing and in electing more people to office that can carry through with the policies that the party stands for. We're having an election, a state convention, I should say, in May, and at that time, the new officers of the uh, party will be elected, and hopefully we'll have some good choices. Okay. All right. Well, that's uh, some uh, good advice from the woman in the House. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> hopefully we'll uh, see some changes made in many directions, both at the party level and at the state level. All right. Well, uh, Representative Pat Psyche, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Kathy. It was a pleasure being with you. That was Pat Psyche, whose new book, A Woman in the House, is to be released next month by Watermark Publishing. The former congresswoman and third-generation Japanese-American educator and gifted athlete with a competitive streak will turn 91 in May.
This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your backyard quiz. The genus Hibiscus contains as many as 300 species worldwide. In Hawaii, there are six species of hibiscus, and all but one are endemic to our islands. The two native Hawaiian white hibiscus, Arnautianus and Waimea I, are not only visually pleasing, but they're also hardy plants that tend to have long lifespans. For a flowering shrub, long is typically considered more than about five years. The flowers aren't invincible, though, and will often fall victim to sucking insects and other pests, including the Chinese rose beetles. What's interesting about these two native hibiscus species is that they have a unique feature found in no other type in the world. So for today's quiz, can you tell us what it is? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which represents real estate businesses committed to strengthening communities by supporting affordable housing with support for nonprofits such as Honolulu Habitat for Humanity. Learn more at nareethawaii.com. Turning now to our listener feedback, many of you tuned in to our call-in show this month, highlighting resources for small-scale farmers and expanding access to local food. Here's one of our guests, Melanie Bondera, talking about how the Keoho Farmers Market on the Big Island adapted during the first lockdown of the pandemic. We went online with a curbside pickup within 10 days of being shut down in the beginning, and that was really a good market, both for Consumers that had never come to our farmer's market before, uh, those who were very concerned about going to a grocery store and maybe they were older, had underlying health conditions, couldn't go at all. It was very efficient, good for our farmers, but we're actually shutting that down at the end of this month because people have gone back to, you know, buying imported food from grocery stores. (laughs) So um, new models came up like that for sales of our local food, um, that it would be nice to keep going into the future to take this this small moment of fear and, and think about how we can create a really ongoing, healthy, nutritious food system um, with small and medium-sized growers around the islands. After the show, two listeners wrote in with comments about the importance of co-ops for the future of small-scale farming. Here's what Wendy had to say. Uh, She writes, I find it difficult to uh, find out about local growers or groups. For instance, I just learned about the Seed Growers Network and the Ulu Group. I'd like to see a kind of co-op of the local small growers. One of your guests spoke about how they have no weight at the legislature. With a group representing them, they'd have a more effective way of getting their ideas presented at the same time as contacting more people who could testify for them. The organization could have a website, a blog, a newsletter, a table at food festivals, etc. Get involved in schools and NFPs. So farmers, organize, advertise, lobby, get your hands on uh, taking water and unused state-held ag lands. Make your food more widely accessible, control price, use the weight of your numbers, and become visible. And listener Charles wrote in about his own experience organizing farm co-ops throughout the Pacific uh, through his work with the Peace Corps. Here's what Charles wrote. 
your broadcast reminded me of one key point, a point often looked by government policy, that organizing small farmers is a vital and worthwhile task if one wants to help small farmers compete against corporate agriculture. When I was starting my Peace Corps assignment in Fiji, a mainstay of ag ed was support for training and organizing and running cooperatives and more generally communities. The focus then was not necessarily cooperative farms, but in support of farmers for inputs, processing and marketing, and for lobbying elected officials. Over the years, I found it was best to focus on the organizing, not the co-ops, and not organizing for the creation of any formal organization, but for at least for a purpose. It is the working together that is vital for achieving most purposes. Are you a local grower who's part of a co-op or CSA? Do you have a favorite farmer's market or local produce stand that you want people to know about? Call into our talkback line at uh, 792-8217 and give your favorite farmers a shout out. We will share your comments on a future show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa. The next online info session for the Executive MBA is 6 p.m. April 8th. Registration at scheidler.hawaii.edu. Honolulu Civil Beats Reality Check looks at efforts to help workers in the visitor industry find jobs that aren't so tied to tourism. Reporter Brittany Light joins us today. Good morning, Brittany. Good morning, Catherine. So today we're talking about, what, a permanent job corps? Yes. So the state lawmakers are considering some legislation that would create a permanent state job corps and the goal would be to address unemployment stemming from the coronavirus, the pandemic, um, and also just to support a more diversified economy that's not so tied to tourism, which, you know, can fluctuate, as we've seen <laughs> yes. uh, last year in particular. So the program would be open to residents, and it would try to gear them up with skills in, for jobs in conservation, um, and agriculture, but also technology, green energy. Um, so the idea is to kind of help build up these new uh, career paths and also get a labor force that has the skills to, to take these jobs. So they roll this out, and how did we do? Yeah, so, th- so this is the idea to do this on a permanent basis, and, and it comes from a little experiment that we had this past year uh, in late 2020, the state funneled about $8 million in federal CARES Act Act funds um, toward creating a a temporary program like this. And so hundreds and hundreds of folks uh, were able to get full or part-time employment at uh, local businesses and nonprofits in these fields, conservation, agriculture, technology, green energy. And they were making salaries of about 13 to $18 an hour. They were getting health benefits. And so, again, this was all funded with federal CARES Act money. It lasted about three months for folks, and then the CARES Act money, you know, dried up. But what we're seeing is that more than half of the participants in this program were able to secure long-term employment. Um, So that's a really good sign. It shows that this money, you know, didn't just help pull people out of unemployment temporarily, but really for the the long term. So the the salaries that they were getting, kind of comparable to what you would make uh, in the tourism industry? I think it depends. But, you know, in some cases, for some people, the salaries were on the lower end of things. Um, But again, this this program was, was almost... You know, think of it as an internship. You're getting on-the-job training, mentorship. So these are kind of, um, 
you know, beginning career jobs where you're just starting out. So I think that the, the wages that folks made during this program really were comparable to, to that. The idea is to kind of get these skills, get the hands-on training, the experience, the networking, and then build your way up to a higher paying career in these fields. And these jobs were tied to our environmental goals, right? Uh, to go green in a lot of areas. Yeah, so I think there's a lot of interest in you know, developing the workforce that we're going to need in Hawaii to achieve some of our environmental goals. Uh, I think everybody's heard we have a goal to, you know, move to a zero emissions clean economy by 2045. And there's a goal to move to renewable electric energy to replace all of our cesspools. Uh, I think that one is by 2050. So these are big, uh, big goals. And it's going to require, you know, a, a workforce that, that can help us get there. And, you know, I, I know that there's been lots of discussion, particularly with the, the uh, conversion of the septic tanks, uh, the cesspools to septic tanks or some other uh, cleaner, greener system. Um, and people don't realize you have to build a workforce in order to accomplish those goals. Exactly. So I think what will be interesting to see is now that tourism is slowly but surely coming back and, and hotels are rehiring, restaurants are ramping up, um, it'll be interesting to see if these folks who participated in this sort of pilot project, if they go back to tourism, you know, where you're making tips oftentimes and where, you know, there, there's a lot of money to be had there. Um, of course, when this program was happening, tourism wasn't really an option, but when it becomes an option again, it will be interesting to see if people pivot back or if they continue to forge ahead with, with a new career path that in many ways is more sustainable. And how's the bill doing in this legislative session? Well, it's still alive, so we'll see. Uh, what I understand is that there's a lot of support to create a program like this, to create the structure. But there's a lot of questions about how it will be funded, how much money, you know, it, it requires to really make a difference, uh, and just where that money is going to come from. I think, you know, a lot of economists would tell you that the pilot program that the state had with the CARES Act money, you know, that, that was a great use of, of public money. But again, you know, it took a lot of money. So that was $8 million. I mean, does the state have millions of dollars to put into this right now? I don't know. All right. So, Well, thank you so much, Brittany. We'll, we'll be watching to see so where the bill goes. That was a reporter, Brittany Light, with today's Reality Check. You can read her story at civilbeat.org. The lymphatic system is one of the most important ways the body helps to treat infections, but it's also one of the least understood. What happens when this system goes awry? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with an expert about the signs and symptoms of lymphedema and discuss the best ways to treat it. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Try saying that five times fast. They've been in the news a lot lately as a new way to buy and trade digital media. But what are people actually buying? HPR's own Bert Lum of Bike Marks Cafe sat down with the conversation's Savannah Harriman-Pote to give us the basics. Understanding fungible is something that you can actually uh, trade like objects. So the example that is, is being shared is Bitcoin. You can share, you can, you can exchange Bitcoins. But when it's non-fungible, it's a one-of-a-kind. So you can have like a, a baseball card, and that baseball card happens to be a one-of-a-kind. Or, or maybe even like a, like a original um, painting, like the Mona Lisa, that's a one-of-a-kind. So when it's a one-of-a-kind, that is non-fungible. And in this case, the token refers to this uh, sort of digital token. Hmm. So the token is one of a kind, but is the digital art that it's being applied to also one of a kind? Well, 
so that's where it gets interesting because you know when it's digital you can obviously make copies pretty easily but when you put it out there as a non-fungible token it's uh, connected to something called a blockchain and the blockchain makes that particular digital uh, work a one of a kind I'll give you an example so Jack Dorsey he's the he's the CEO of Twitter and he actually put his first tweet out as a NFT and he put that out for sale or actually auction and it is auctioning somewhere upwards to like 2.5 million dollars but you can still have the you know digital copy but the actual non-fungible token of that tweet is a one of a kind so <laughs> it is tricky for me and perhaps many of our listeners to understand why these non-fungible tokens would have value if you can access the digital media that they are attached to for free anyway. <laughs> well, so there's artists that are going to be putting out their work, and perhaps their work, they can reserve the copying of their work and make a one-of-a-kind available. And, and really, it all boils down to how much is somebody willing to pay for something that is a one-of-a-kind. Now, in the case of uh, um, you know, a tweet, it might be hard to imagine, but you can still lay claim to the fact that you have a one-of-a-kind because it's proven by the, the blockchain. Even if it's a, a tweet, it is still a one-of-a-kind as a result of it being made available on one of these uh, marketplaces. You know, it's it's kind of like the bragging rights, but in also in this marketplace, it's all about who puts value on any of these items, right? So it's kind of a, like a free market, and that's how people value anything, right? I mean, if if uh, you had something and and um, you think it's you know worth ten dollars, but <clears throat> I might think that it's worth fifty, then I might buy it from you for fifty dollars, and who cares if they think that that probably wasn't even worth two dollars? It's, it's in my mind that it's worth that much to me. So do you think NFTs are here to stay? I think it is a, a new form of acquiring unique items, kind of a new frontier. And it's something that people are interested in. I think they're going to be definitely uh, exploring it. For the next five, ten years, it'll, it'll be around uh, into infinity. Who knows? But I think for the time being, it is novel enough. Uh, there is a lot of digital content being created, and it does offer a way for some of those uh, digital artists to actually put some of their work out. And, and as, uh, as an auctionable item, I mean, if they can make some money, uh, I think it's great. And I know you, you've talked about digital artists primarily in this conversation, a group that has had challenges getting compensation for their work in the past because it is so widely accessible on different platforms is this a universal good for digital artists? I think it's a new way of uh, them perhaps uh, getting some compensation for the work that they do. So it's just another vehicle for some um, potential you know, financial transaction. Now, you've got to remember that the transaction involves uh, cryptocurrency. And the crypto cryptocurrency that is kind of the key behind the uh, NFTs is something called Ethereum. And of course, Ethereum is a is a cryptocurrency. So, it's not like you can uh, just arbitrarily uh, go out on the market and and uh, get dollars for your uh, particular digital art. You have to you have to do it on the um, Ethereum exchange. And and one of the things that uh, you have to also have is a wallet, and you have to have an Ethereum wallet. And there's something called MetaMask that is an uh, Ethereum wallet that you can use to do your transaction. So you do your transaction in Ethereum, and then once you want to cash it in, then you can cash it in uh, for dollars. Hmm. And I understand that these blockchains, Bitcoin and Ethereum, are heavily energy intensive. Well, that's true. And now you got to remember the, you know, there's a differentiation between the uh, cryptocurrency and the actual blockchain. The blockchain is like a distributed ledger. So it's a, it's a ledger, and these ledgers exist you know, all over because it's distributed. And there's algorithms that um, uh, can replicate these uh, ledgers. And from what I understand, the, the uh, Bitcoin 
uh, blockchain is is really energy intensive. So uh, that will definitely you know take a toll on the amount of uh, computing power and energy to to run that. And then the but the Ethereum Ethereum one is is uh, much more efficient, from what I understand, and and it w- requires less uh, energy um, output. So um, you know again, but it you know the um, I, I don't have servers that I'm testing that I can I can uh, <laughs> you know prove that is in fact the case. But uh, my understanding is that Ethereum is still uh, more energy efficient. Mm. Bert, you've spoken pretty highly of NFTs. Uh, are you running out to the digital marketplace to snatch up any? Well, you know, the uh, the, the marketplace that uh, I was uh, kind of exploring, it's called OpenSea. And I did contemplate uh, an idea. And one of the ideas I had was, you know, I used to do uh, um, kind of like an online, well, actually, it was a hard copy fanzine. This was back in the day when, you know, going to... Uh, punk rock concerts and, you know, <laughs> doing a fanzine and, and writing it about it. And, you know, I have a whole bunch of covers. And what I thought would be kind of cool, because these are all hard copy, that I would, uh, you know, do a PDF of the covers and just put it out as an auction, as a as a novelty thing that somebody, if they were interested, you know, could get the, uh, you know, the first uh, cover of the Novus magazine or the first cover of Bruhaha that, you know, is another uh, fanzine that we created. This is back when you were probably like two years old. So this was back in the uh, er- early 80s. Generous. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I want to pinpoint some of the words that you've mentioned. Uh, novelty, accessibility, this idea that this is a way to pay artists who have been excluded from traditional fine art markets before. But it, it does make me wonder. I know that Beeple, uh, one of the most famous digital artists, had one of his pieces auctioned for $69 million. Is that or is any kind of income realistic for artists who don't have that kind of incredible base or publicity around their art already? Well, for somebody to get $16 million off of their art, I mean, obviously they had a, a following, you know, a, you know, maybe a uh, celebrity status. Uh, for uh, an artist that wants to, you know, make it on the scene. I mean, it's still a marketplace, and your art has to stand out, and you still have to get eyes on your art. Now, what is kind of, you know, very different nowadays than, than uh, you know, maybe in the olden days when I was around, <laughs> when I was uh, doing uh, fanzines, was that, uh, you know, you have things like social media. You have applications like, uh, you know, TikTok and Snapchat, and uh, you have all the, uh, you know, social media platforms. And there's, you know, there are ways of getting your work out there. And there are ways to establish yourself as a uh, as an influencer or a, a celebrity. So there's still work to be done. I mean, just because we have the platforms that make it available for people to auction off their digital content, it doesn't, it's, you still need to work at getting your uh, brand out there, your publicity. You make your own. You have to create your own publicity machine, and and let people know that you're you're out there. But you know, I I see so many you know young people that are really making a name for themselves on some of these platforms. So, uh, but it takes a lot of work, and and so uh, my my suggestion that you know even if you are um, interested in in doing this, uh, just because you put something out there. Uh, doesn't mean you know people are gonna gonna flock to it. You still have to kind of work the marketplace. That was Bert Lum of Bite Marks Cafe. You can tune into a show covering Hawaii's tech community live at six thirty every Wednesday evening here on HPR. Still have questions? Well, Savannah Harriman Pote will pick up this topic tomorrow with different perspectives of three local artists. Or you can just watch Saturday night's uh, live skit on NFTs from the weekend. Bert Lum says they did a pretty good job. Hey, here's the thing about NFTs. It's a non-fungible token, you see. Non-fungible means that it's unique. There can only be one like you and me. Oh. NFTs are insane. insane. Built on a blockchain. Right. A digital ledger of transactions. It records information on what's happening. When it's minted, you can sell it as art. And this concludes my rapping part. Very fungible. Yeah. It's a rhyme for the eating lunchable. A mix of Colin Joseph's face. Very fungible. Digital images. Is he my doing scrimmages? Or a pick of a note with the Nintendo in the
was just a list of complete nonsense, but you're not totally wrong. This is the conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. This week, astronomer Christopher Phillips and HPR's Dave Lawrence talk about a new black hole discovery on your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer Time, our weekly look into the massive universe around our tiny, very troubled planet. And as always, turning to the expertise of Christopher Phillips, who we've got on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do you have for us this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be here. So this week, stargazers look out for Mars in the western sky after sunset. It'll be visible at around 11 p.m. The moon this week is beginning to wane, but will remain a bright presence in the sky through till the week's end. And you've got an update of some kind relating to information about that uh, black hole, of course, Hawaii playing a role in the discovery of? Yes, you may remember back in 2019, a historic image was taken, the first of its kind. It was of the black hole in the galaxy M87, around 55 million light years away. This image was the result of an international collaboration of astronomical observatories known as the Event Horizon Telescope, or EHT, which included the James Clark Maxwell Telescope atop Mauna Kea. Well, not to rest on their laurels, the team behind the EHT have now obtained new images of the black hole in polarized light, which reveal the nature of the black hole's powerful magnetic field. So first, how about explaining polarized light and how it led to this discovery? Well, think about wearing a pair of polarized sunglasses. When you put them on, they block out certain light waves, and the world can look very different. For example, when you look at the ocean on a sunny day, it can be very bright. But put on a pair of polarized sunglasses, and certain light waves are filtered out, allowing you to see detail in the waves, and in some cases, even underwater. And I gather what you're saying is it allowed us to see some details we couldn't see before. Exactly. By capturing this polarized light from the disk around the black hole, it was possible to visualize the powerful magnetic fields emanating from that area and from this celestial monster. It's wild, man. All the details they come up with and stuff that's just so far from us. It's incredible. And in many ways, it's like the first images of microbes captured from the first microscopes when they were invented. Hmm. It's a scientific first. And let's not forget, it took the collaboration from over 200 researchers, not to mention some of the most powerful radio telescopes on Earth, to make it happen. Another fascinating report from you, Christopher Phillips. Thank you so much. You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. You can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for the Information Technology and Communication Primary Facility at McMurdo Station, Antarctica. Committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design, ferrarochoi.com. Earlier in the show, we jumped into the garden to ask you about the hibiscus flower. According to estimates, the genus hibiscus contains as many as 300 species worldwide. There are six native hibiscus species in Hawaii, and all but one are endemic to our islands. The two types of white hibiscus tend to live quite lengthy lives, meaning about five years. While the hibiscus is hardy, it is an invincible and often falls victim to sucking insects and other pests. Today, we asked you about a unique feature found in no other type in the world, and we asked you to name it. If you've been near a blooming hibiscus, uh, Arnautianus, and hibiscus Waimea'i, you've probably smelled the scent of the only hibiscus species in the world known to have fragrant flowers. Thanks to nativeplants.hawaii.edu for today's quiz. Uh, and if you have an, uh, one to share, please send it to talkback and ho- at hawaiipublicradio.org. And congratulations to our winner, Malia Gonzalez of Honolulu. You got it right.
Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Energy, committed to helping nonprofits reduce their energy use during COVID-19 with energy-efficient lighting and HVAC systems. HawaiiEnergy.com slash four businesses. It's been a year since the COVID-19 pandemic reached our shores, and we're starting to see signs of hope. We still have a long way to go. HPR continues to keep you connected, serving as your eyes and ears to the world. We help you keep yourself and your family safe and navigate these uncertain times. Help us move forward together by becoming a new sustaining member at $10 a month. Give online quickly and easily at hawaiipublicradio.org. That's it for today. On tap, we look at a tale of two longtime bakeries, one that closed its doors yesterday and another that shuts down the day after tomorrow. Do you have a story idea to share with us? Call our talk back line, 808-792-8217. Tweet us at HI Conversation or head to our Facebook page. And remember, all of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hoypublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.